Hello, this is Esther Provo, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from the May 20th issue of the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. And on to our first article. David Poulin, Secret Ingredients to the Stanley Cup, here's what the NHL's Final Four all have in common. We are down to the Final Four teams competing for hockey's ultimate prize, and I'd highly encourage the 28 teams not so playing to watch closely. Rather than escape the scene and hide on a beach somewhere, players are better served to treat this like a master class and see what they can learn. The NHL is a famed copycat league. If something works well, it is guaranteed we'll see a number of clubs trying to employ the same system or tactics moving forward. There are plenty of common threads worth copying among the four remaining teams. The single most glaring trait we are seeing as we get closer to the Stanley Cup final is a high compete level. The intensity is off the charts and leaps off the screen. Pace, physical play, the willingness to finish every check, it's an admirable skill, one that is talked about a lot in scouting rooms at every level. Technical skills are much more objective and easier to assess, while the compete level is more challenging to define. It's subjective, but it's not. It is also evident when you see it, and right now it is stamped all over these conference finals, where every puck is contested by every player. The Florida Panthers may be the most intriguing to watch on this front, because they felt it was missing from their president's trophy team last season. And Matthew Techchuk changed at that. One player had the contagious effect of dragging each and every teammate into the battle until it became part of their fabric. Florida now competes at an entirely different level, disposing of both the powerhouse Bruins and the highly skilled Maple Leafs to get to this stage. The four remaining teams also have a strong recognition of time. They are closely matched and do not waste a shift. Any single play could be the determining factor. And they play like they know it, with the opening games of both series needing overtime and four extra sessions for Florida to beat Carolina. Every opportunity is treated like a deciding moment. The squads have technical similarities too. The biggest compliment I can give a coach is that his team looks organized. The coaches prefer to call it structure, but it simply means there is a plan and it's being well executed. These are all strong defensive teams that understand their systems and play within them. They forecheck well, never passing up an opportunity to finish a check, and are smart about possessing the puck. Most importantly, they control the risk factor by not forcing situations and understanding that a simple play allows them to live to fight another day. These four teams also like to roll their lines and their defense pairings. Everyone plays. That shows trust in the players and organizational depth. For a newcomer like Dallas's 21-year-old defender, Thomas Harley, who played only six regular season games this year, but has toiled in all 14 playoff games or averaging 15 plus minutes to 38-year-old Joe Pavelski. If you're in the lineup, you're playing. Scoring balances another asset. One could choose a star performer from each of the four balances paramount. Certainly, Rupin's has shone for the stars. Jack Tuck has been otherworldly for the Panthers. Jack Eichel has thrived for Vegas in his first playoff showing. And Sebastian Aho leads the Hurricanes in his understated fashion. But these teams don't feature superstar. None of them feature 
a top 10 paid player in the league. Only two skaters on these four teams showed up in the top 34 scorers in the league, with Takchuk and Dallas's Jason Robertson tied for six. The goals come from everyone. There are no excuses. Vegas is arguably employing a career backup goalie in Eden Hill, and has tightened on nicely in front of him and not said a word. The Canes have been without star Andre Schneknov and veteran Mac Passioretti up front, but have found different ways to create offense. Florida had the most challenging draw facing Boston and Toronto, but powered through. Dallas lost their de facto leader in Pavelski early in the first round, and others stepped up. The coaching is excellent. Paul Morris in Florida, Bruce Cassidy in Vegas, Peter DeBoer of the Stars and Rod Brenda Moore in Carolina are experienced, smart, and understand their teams. The first three have combined for more than 3,500 regular season games behind the bench. Brenda Moore adds 1,500 games played to his 370 as a bench boss. They are also each is in their first year with their respective teams, meaning their voices are fresh. It is the best time of year to be playing hockey in the NHL. Those that aren't should be watching and absorbing. 32 teams with a Stanley Cup dream is now down to four. Enjoy the pursuit. And on to our next article. Nursing agencies cashing in on staffing shortages. Privately operated nursing agencies are taking advantage of the widespread nursing shortage and creating havoc within our profession, pushing profit margins to astronomical levels while bringing publicly funded organizations close to bankruptcy. In many circumstances, agencies are creating more harm than good within our healthcare system and have become predatory. Nursing agencies have been around for decades and served as a necessary and valuable part in healthcare services especially for addressing short-term staffing shortages and the ministry of health cannot accommodate and the ministry of health cannot accommodate the spending this permanent patch job demands unfortunately many rural hospitals and long-term care homes particularly under the strain of more than two years of crisis level covid 19 have had no choice but to use them having been left with few options and little support Using agency nurses at agency prices has raised such facilities' total spending on outsourced nursing to six times what it had been before the pandemic. This is unsustainable. The citizens of Minden, Ontario learned April 20th that their emergency department will be closing on June 1st, with Halliburton Highlands Health Services citing staff shortages as the main cause. The impact of this decision is being felt across the entire community, and more than 16,000, including permanent and seasonal residents, have signed petitions against the planned closure. Nursing agencies can take advantage of the staff shortage because there is so little regulation or restriction on how they can operate. For them, there is opportunity in the current low supply, high demand dynamic that permeates the healthcare system. Some agencies are testing how far they can push their rates, with some chain charging as much as $300 an hour when the typical salary of a nurse is about $40 an hour. Public hospitals in Ontario are, by public statute, not allowed to offer wage premiums or provide incentives. The situation breeds conflict among colleagues since local nurses 
are earning far less than the agency nurses, than the agency nurses who work side by side with them, and lower paid permanent staff must often train agency nurses in procedures specific to their facilities and supervise their clinical work. It's not surprising that this has led many to quit their jobs to earn more with agencies. This dynamic is harming the nursing profession, often creating a toxic environment and making it harder for our students and new nurses to grow and flourish within the public healthcare system. Attracting nurses to agency work has become very competitive, with new graduate incentives and sign-up bonuses as high as 25000 in some rural areas for those who agree to stay and work for two years. Robot shortage of nurses has led provinces such as Ontario to attract nurses from abroad to come and work in Canada. Is this the right solution? It takes time and money to assure foreign trained nurses are certified and equipped to deliver safe and competent care here. Further, this practice depletes nursing resources in countries that desperately need nurses themselves. We should be training more homegrown nurses to meet the needs of our Canadian healthcare system and be helping not hurting other countries that are not as privileged as we are. We need to stabilize our nursing shortage here in Canada and have support from the Ministry of Health with the recent expansion of the nursing student seats in our undergraduate programs to build sustainable health care in rural hospitals and elsewhere. More partnerships between universities and rural hospitals for student placements will build capacity and attract new nurses, nurse practitioners, nurse practitioners and physicians to rural areas. At the same time, we can build a more equitable system so all Canadians can access modern, adequately resourced healthcare. Minden is just the beginning. We need government oversight for mandatory licensing and cost restrictions for nursing agencies to protect our profession and to provide high quality, more affordable healthcare to our communities. And on to our next article. Is this the end of lettuce? Why Canada's food supply is headed for uncharted territory? Picture the Titanic, except filled with lettuce instead of passengers. Now picture five Titanics filled with lettuce, plus another half-filled ship. Picture this armada of ships, laden with romaine, spring mix, red leaf, green leaf, and iceberg, all setting sail for Canada. This is how much lettuce our country imports every year. 265,000 metric tons in 2022 alone. Almost all of it comes from the U.S. and the majority from one state, California. For years, this fleet of import lettuce arrived without incident, supplying a steady stream of leafy, leafy greens to our frostbitten country. But in the past six months, leaks appeared. The last fall, heat, drought, and disease coalesced to blight lettuce crops in California so severely that for a few weeks, lettuce abruptly vanished from Canadian grocery store shelves. What little was available cost in some cases 500% more than usual. Supply stabilized somewhat as production shifted to Arizona over the winter. But this spring when lettuce imports would normally switch back to California, flooding from a relentless torrent of atmospheric rivers and unusually cool temperatures delayed the crop, pinching supply again. California is being hammered by climate change. 
compounding long-standing water woes and natural weather extremes. The impact on Canada may be most obvious in our lettuce supply, but evidence of their climate and water stress can be found all across the produce aisle, if you know where to look. Approximately three quarters of all fresh fruits and vegetables consumed in Canada is imported, and California supplies a major chunk of that. Our dependence on the state means that California's means that California's environmental woes are ours too, and the impacts can be felt in our fridges, grocery bills, and even on our health. I don't want to be, you know, doomsday, but I mean, we are currently depending for almost all of our fruits and vegetables on one small geographic region, which is currently in a drought. And that drought is expected by all estimations to probably be worse over the next 10 years, said Evan Fraser, director of the Arel Food Institute and professor of geography at the University of Guelph. California doesn't produce and export with the same level of stability and predictability and cost that it's had over the last 20 years. The implication of that is going to be higher prices and periods of disruption. Our food system is already shifting in response, with Canadian farmers moving some crops indoors to create a stable, homegrown supply of vegetables, at least partially protected from the vagaries of Mother Nature. Experts say that these solutions hold promise, but barriers remain too rapidly scaling up. In the meantime, Canadians are fueling the heat. More than three quarters of us don't eat enough fruits and vegetables already with cost being a major barrier. While it's hard to disentangle the various causes of food, inflation and environmental crises are definitely playing a role in the stubbornly high price of groceries. All these things add the continual upward pressure of our food prices at a moment of very, very high food price inflation, where an eye-watering number of Canadians cannot afford to Eat a healthy diet, Fraser says. You don't need an advanced degree in agricultural economics to understand why Canada has looked for a stable year-round supply of fresh vegetables. If you've ever moped around in February wondering how anyone could survive on such little sunlight, imagine being a carrot. The country's trade deficit in field vegetables, how much more we import than export, reached 1.5 billion last year, according to Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. The U.S. is our biggest supplier, and the largest proportion of most U.S. food vegetables are from California. Arizona, which has its own water problems, is also an important provider, especially of lettuce. This imbalance is a long-term structural problem, said Rod McRae, Professor Emeritus at York University's Faculty of Environmental and Urban Change. We used to be way more self-reliant in fresh fruits and vegetables. We produced a lot more of what we consumed domestically. And since World War II, all that has seriously deteriorated, largely because there's very limited policy supports for it compared to, say, the grain or the animal sectors. For some veggie staples, the kinds your doctor probably wants you to eat more of, the imbalance is hefty. Canada produced 65 1,500 metric tons of broccoli and cauliflower last year and imported more than double that amount, according to data supplied by the Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada. We grew 103,000 metric tons of lettuce and imported more than two and a half times as much. 
We grew 6,700 metric tons of spinach and imported five times as much. Canada also doesn't eat everything it grows. We export a lot of fresh vegetables too. Last year, Canada participated in a massive cross-border carrot swap, exporting 98,579 metric tons and importing 98,626 or 98,626 metric tons, nearly the exact same amount. That happens for a few reasons. A spokesperson for the Agriculture Canada says, North-South trade between the U.S. and Canada can mean shorter distances and therefore lower costs and carbon emissions than East-West within this enormous country. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. It's also because vegetables are perishable. When we produce a glut that can't be eaten before it spoils, we export the excess. On the flip side, when we produce a glut, on the flip side, even with domestic greenhouse production, Canada must import fresh tomatoes in February and March from outside Canada to satisfy consumers who wish to consume tomatoes fresh at that time of year, this person says. For the four field vegetables mentioned above, broccoli and cauliflower, lettuce and spinach, approximately two-thirds of imports came from California. The state supplied half of our cabbage and kale imports and 80% and 80% of our celery imports. In the middle of winter, California, Arizona, and other hot U.S. states would provide an even higher total for many fruits and vegetables. For years, this arrangement worked pretty well, but now California is running out of water. The state's primary agriculture powerhouse is living on borrowed time, said Christopher Schwalm, director of the Climate Risk Program at the U.S.-based Woodrow Climate Research Center. California's Central Valley extends like a pointed index finger through the middle of the state. Aside from producing billions of dollars worth of agriculture exports, Canada is the biggest buyer. Ahead of the EU and China, the region also supplies a quarter of all the food eaten in America, according to the U.S. government figures. Jutting off of the Central Valley like a thumb is the Salinas Valley, dubbed the salad bowl of the world because of its vast production of leafy greens. Crops love this region for the same reason people do. It's always sunny. Every summer here, from basically the middle of April until October or November, there is essentially zero precipitation, says Jay Lund, professor of civil engineering and environmental engineering at the University of California, Davis. Lack of rain is, ironically, ideal. For producing high yields, Lund said, farmers tightly control the water for crops through irrigation, using what they need rather than relying on boom and bust cycles from the sky. We don't have those thunderstorms that are coming in and flooding your field in the middle of the high growth, Lund says. But to supplement the water collected in reservoirs, farmers have been pumping groundwater from underground aquifers. Starting in the 1990s, Schwalm says the region began pumping more water from below ground than could be recharged by rain every year. So much groundwater has been pumped out that parts of the Central Valley are suffering from a phenomenon known as subsidence. The ground is shrinking as the aquifers below it are depleted. In some places, by as much as 9 meters, aquifers closer to the coast have, been, have seen seawater intrude as groundwater levels drop risking the water becoming unusably salty. Some Californians have discovered 
that they were drinking water while well, it was draw nothing but sand. The winters back-to-back atmospheric rivers, heavy storms that have also been supercharged by climate change, have replenished some aquifers, but not all. We're still fundamentally short on water, Schwalm says. Climate change is exacerbating the situation in multiple ways. It increases the risk of drought, which means less rain to recharge the aquifers. It also increases evaporative demand. Hotter, drier air means more moisture is absorbed forever making it underground. And crops, especially ones such as lettuce that require moderate temperatures, need more water to stay cool and healthy. In-house analyses by the Woodrow Center show that a big chunk of the Central Valley ranks among the worst regions in the world for water scarcity, Schwalm says. They really have the worst end of the stick that is possible, says Schwalm, who is based in Arizona. Arizona has its own water issues, relying on the heavily overdrawn Colorado River. Agriculture will also take a hit, there to keep the river from dangerously dropping low. In 2014, California's government signed a law called the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, which requires local agencies to come up with plans and set limits on how much water is pumped from underground. Last year marked the deadline for when regions had to submit plans to use groundwater sustainably and start implementing them. Linda says it is unavoidable that cropland will be fallowed to compensate for the reduction in water supply since agriculture uses about 80% of the water in the state. He estimates anywhere from anywhere from 15 to 20% of irrigated land in the state will be retired from agriculture. Other estimates vary, but are at least half a million acres. Lund predicts that farmers will have to fallow their field during bad droughts in the past. We'll cut back on less profitable crops like alfalfa and cornburst. The high-valuable vegetable commodities are likely to be preserved. That doesn't reassure the University of Gulf's Evan Fraser. It's not only will they continue to produce, but will they continue to export to Canada? And will they continue to export to Canada at prices people can afford, he asks. Climate change isn't going to destroy agriculture, but it's going to make food harder and more expensive to produce. Experts the star spoke to differed in their predictions of how these changes will ultimately alter Canada's food supply. Some say our diets will have to change. Others disagreed. Some say technology will save the day. Others were skeptical. Supply is one part of the equation, demand another. Will anyone buy cauliflower if it costs $12 a head? It's incredibly hard to predict, Schwalm says. Maybe the most mind-blowing thing about many, many Titanic's worth of produce that arrives at Canada's borders yearly is that it's still not enough to nourish everyone. The percentage of Canadians who report eating at least five servings of fruit and vegetables daily, the amount the World Health Organization recommends for optimal health, has been dropping steadily year over year. Just 22% of Canadian youth and adults eat at least five servings daily in 2021, a decline of almost 10% in less than a decade, according to Statistics Canada. The biggest reason, reason for not eating more fruits and vegetables is cost. A survey by the Agri-Food Lab Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University found, we have seen just eye-watering rates of food insecurity in this country in the last year in response to food price inflation, says Fraser. 
pointed to recently released results from the Canadian Income Survey. More than one in five Canadians lived in households experiencing food insecurity in 2021, a jump of 1.1 million people in a single year. Simply boosting vegetable supply is not enough to combat this problem, Fraser says. It's hard to imagine a scenario where anybody can afford salads if you're spending 4000 bucks a month on a studio apartment to pick one socioeconomic stressor. But without action, the problem is only going to get worse. I'm worried that if what we see is rapid food price inflation, specifically on the fresh fruits and vegetables, we will exacerbate an already terrible food insecurity problem in our country, he says. In Canada, some crops are already moving inside. Significantly more peppers and cucumbers are grown in Canadian greenhouses than in the field, according to Agriculture Canada data. For cucumbers, it's more than five times as much. A modest amount of lettuce was grown indoors last year, around 20,000 metric tons, less than one-tenth of what we import. But while peppers, cucumbers, and tomatoes saw incremental gains in greenhouse production over the past five years, indoor lettuce production almost tripled. When asked about the country's reliance on fresh vegetable imports, a spokesperson for Agriculture Canada wrote that indoor agriculture sector is the largest and fastest growing segment of Canadian horticulture, a sector that includes both traditional greenhouses and futuristic seeming vertical farms. Going forward, the department anticipates that greenhouse vegetable production acreage will continue their multi-decade trend of growth, the spokesperson says. Vertical farming is a nascent but increasingly high-profile form of indoor agriculture, where even more of the environment is controlled. A big advantage of vertical farms is efficiency. Lots of lettuce can be stacked on not a lot of land, and they are designed to use very little water. Salad mixes grown in vertical farms are already available in Ontario grocery stores, and researchers are experimenting with other crops. Both greenhouses and vertical farming can produce greater densities than field. Every day is a good weather day, says Thomas Graham, a professor and research chair in controlled environment systems at the University of Guelph. But the biggest elephant in the room, he says, is energy use. Providing enough light and heat to sustain these crops can drive up prices and complicate the sustainable label, depending on the power grid that supplies these ventures. Fraser says that vertical farms are a helpful tool, but not a panacea, and points out that to replace the 265,000 metric tons of lettuce imported annually, Canada would have to build something like 265 vertical farms. It's good to have a local source of salad, he says, but it's not a food system. And on to our next article. With the race on to save a cottage country, ER, officials reveal their case for shutting it. Public health officials behind the move to shutter the emergency department of a small community hospital in Minden, Ontario, are offering their fullest public defense of the controversial decision. It comes amidst a growing campaign from local residents and elected officials for reversal of the decision. Made with just six weeks notice and without community consultation, critics say that has illustrated the pains and perils of Ontario's stressed 
healthcare system. Carolyn Plummer, president and CEO of Halliburton Highlands Health Services, says severe and permanent persistent nursing shortages over the past 18 months, in addition to physician shortages at the Halliburton Emergency Department, one of two hospital sites overseen by HHAS have necessitated the consolidation of emergency services by Halliburton alone. The rationale for this consolidation of emergency services at the Halliburton site rather than in Minden is largely due to the fact that the Halliburton site is the location of the only inpatient acute care beds in all of Halliburton country, she told the Star in a statement. The Minden site is not suitable for permanent inpatient beds. It would require over a million dollars in renovation costs, and likely more, as well as a multi-year approval and renovation process to try to create a permanent inpatient space in Minden, she said, adding that Minden would only be able to accommodate between 6 and 10 beds, whereas Halliburton has 15 beds available. Other factors that led to the decision, she said, include feedback from local paramedic services, highlighting that the Halliburton site is more centralized in Halliburton County for patient transfers. She also cited its proximity to the Halliburton Family Medical Center, which helps to facilitate easy access for primary care physicians to see patients in the emergency department and inpatient units when needed. And she pointed to the fact that there are more space options at the Halliburton site to accommodate the volume associated with a consolidated ED. The closure of Minden ED comes as a provincial healthcare system is still reeling from COVID-19 pandemic pressures, staff burnout, attrition, and mental health challenges, as well as increased patient demand. Announced in an April, announced in an April 2020 news release, the decision to close the Minden ED on June the 1st has enraged local residents and cottagers, prompting a grassroots Save Minden ER movement that has collected more than 22,000 signatures. Staged demonstrations in front of the local MPP Lori Scott's Constitution office, several messages sent by the SCAR star to Scott's office have gone unacknowledged, launched a yellow Minden Matters lawn sign campaign and erected two four-meter by two-meter signs along highways 35 and 118 to warn cottagers of the impending closure. Responding to a question Friday about responding to a question Friday about whether there was a chance that the Ontario government would try to keep the ER from closing, Premier Doug Ford said that the hospital itself would be staying open and said his government was working with the hospitals. They're the ones that hire nurses within that community, but we always believe in giving the best service we can when it comes to healthcare right across the province. So we are working hand in hand with the hospital through the Ministry of Health. Meanwhile, on Friday, local resident Patrick Porzukek, a spokesperson for the campaign, announced a plan to raise $100,000 to fund a legal challenge seeking an injunction and judicial review of the decision prior to June 1st. Porzek, who moved with his family to Minden in 2015, knows how crucial access to the emergency care can be. In March, he had to rush his six-year-old daughter, Kinsley, to the minded ED after she suffered severe heart arrhythmia during a dance recital. Doctors were able to stabilize Kinsley, and she was referred to a pediatric cardiologist. 
Poor Zigzag says that without the ED, the outcome could have been worse. You're listening to a reading of the articles and features on the Toronto Star on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. He points out that the Minden ED is fully staffed until September, as disclosed recently by the local physician group, whereas the Halliburton ED is still trying to fill shifts. HHHS told the Star that the July and August schedule for the Halliburton site is now being populated by local physicians before unfilled shifts are posted on the Health Force Ontario, a, pop, a government job board that connects Ontario doctors with shifts across the province. The Minden ED is staffed by physicians from surrounding area hospitals such as Peterborough, Lindsay, and Barrie, who take on 24-hour shifts. Both the Minden and Halliburton EDs are staffed with one physician per shift. In 2022, there were 13,000 visits to the Minden ED compared to 9,500 to the Halliburton ED, according to HHHS. When asked by the Starway, HHHS doesn't keep the Minden ED open since it is already staffed for the summer. Plumber said doctors at that site indicated that if the Halliburton ED were to close as a result of a physician shortage, it would not be safe for that one Minden ED physician to provide coverage for the entire county, which meant that the Minden ED would also have to close, leaving Halliburton County with no local services. NDP health critic Fans Franch Delinas doesn't buy that argument, saying during a Friday news conference to announce a rally taking place at Minden at 1 p.m. Sunday, that it is the job of HHHS leadership to ensure both hospitals are staffed properly. Plummer said HHHS is trying to recruit and retain staff, but noted that rural areas such as the Halliburton Highlands have found this task challenging for many years. These challenges were severely exacerbated during the COVID-19 pandemic, when healthcare systems across the globe began to experience shortages of qualified staff to fill positions, she said. There simply isn't there simply isn't an available pool of nursing staff and physicians available to hire from, and there is no end in sight for these shortages. With files from Robert Benzie, and on to our next article. Mind-blowing Toronto startup creates AI-powered bionic arm that can think and see for itself. Sakai Muscat has investigated most of her life using just three limbs. Growing up, in Zimbabwe, missing part of her left arm, something like a bionic limb replacement was beyond imagining for her and most others who needed them. Now, after finally receiving her first functional prosthetic at age 44, the Ontario-based entrepreneur and full-time mom says her life will never be the same. Before, I was just living my life as a limb-different woman and a no-prosthetic arm, doing what I could to have a normal life, says Muscat, who lives in the Kortha Lakes area. Life after smart arm? Mind-blowing. I keep finding things that I never thought I needed another arm to do. Muscat is the first recipient of smart arm, a 3D-printed, vision-powered bionic arm, developed by a Toronto startup company and controlled by Microsoft's Azure AI. Not only is the prosthetic several times cheaper than similar competitors, its creators say that it's the first arm that can think and see for itself using a built-in camera and machine learning algorithms. Smart arm is a perfect example of how people can leverage artificial intelligence. 
for good, said Haimao Chowdhury, the 25-year-old founder and CEO of SmartArm, in an interview with The Star. Our goal is to make arms that are not only accessible and affordable for people, but actually functional and powerful as well. A smart arm's hand features five articulated fingers, five articulated fingers that can move individually, mounted on a rotatable wrist, Chowdhury says. A small camera set in the palm can identify the shape and characteristics of any object its user tries to pick up. This information is then fed to Microsoft's AI, which coordinates the fingers and wrist to naturally grab or manipulate the item according to its user's command. When someone who has a flesh arm goes to pick something up, you don't necessarily think about the individual little muscle fibers you need in order to pick it up correctly. You just sort of do it, Chowdhury says. That's the power of our AI control system. The hand thinks and acts for you, so you don't have to. The prosthetic is now available for pre-order and can cost up to $15,000, Chatri says. In comparison, similar functional prosthetics with individually moving fingers can start at $60,000, $70,000 or more. The response has been overwhelming. We have had people register from all different parts of the world, the US, Canada, the UK, Chowdhury says, though we couldn't share exact numbers. It shows that the problem is not just limited to one geographical area. People around the world feel similarly frustrated about the gaps in the prosthetic market. The price point was a major reason that Muscat went with smart arm. I couldn't afford anything else. She said, adding that in Canada and around the world, functional prosthetics are not covered by most insurance and public health care plans. A lot of people end up having to mortgage their houses if they need a functional prosthetic because the only way to get it is to pay it out of pocket. Although Muscat tried using a basic prosthetic before, an arm that was articulated or powered, she soon gave it up. It felt heavy, clunky, and didn't look like something that belonged in my body, she said. That's a difference, because once I put smart arm on, I felt one with it. It's a cohesive relationship. It feels like it's always been there. I'm still learning how to use it, but for me, it's more than just about the arm. To be able to put this fantastic tool on me and walk around, that just does so much for someone's self-esteem. Smart Arm started as a passion project for Chowdhury when he was still studying at Ontario Tech University in Ottawa, he said. On a whim, Chowdhury posted a few videos of his progress online, where it was soon noticed by a Microsoft employee. The employee urged him to submit the pro project to the company's annual Imagine Cup competition, where students designed products to solve real-world problems. To his team's surprise, they were announced the winners in 2018, beating out tens of thousands of competitors. From there, Chowdhury's pet project snowballed into his life's work. With him eventually dropping out of school to focus on his company, Muscat, intrigued by SmartArm's early videos, reached out asking to purchase an arm for herself. Five years later, she has remained in close contact with the company, even testing some of their prototypes despite her technical inexperience. It's how she got her smart arms so early. They're my family, Muscat said of Chowdhury and the other developers. And on to our next article. Why the explosive rise of generative AI underscores the need for a reimagined social contract. 
In the publishing industry, every book begins with a proposal. I'm sharing this with you because I'm planning to write a new book and was curious if ChatGPT could actually be a helpful tool for a um, brilliant author like me. The new book will be about my idea for creating a new social contract for the digital age. And I asked ChatGPT to create a proposal that's written in my style as an author. Since my previous books and articles are easily discoverable on the internet, ChatGPT had no trouble finding samples of my writing to emulate. Seconds after typing in the prompt, ChatGPT spit out its response. The book proposal it has just created for me wasn't great. There were long sentences with predicate nominative and predicate adjective constructions unfurling with mathematical precision. The passive voice was overused, so typical of institutional writing, representing faceless collectives behind cinder block facades and uniform resource locators. It was all it was all very sensible writing, sounding like the work of an authoritative consulting firm. But it wasn't bad either. In fact it was okay. And that's when I felt it show, as though someone had just opened a door on a wintry day. Here on my screen, finally, was proof that we have entered a new and potentially dangerous stage of human existence. Like a passerby. Like a passerby to a traffic accident. I couldn't help feeling fascinated. I was hooked. I asked ChatGPT to create a proposal for an academic version of a book and a TED Talk version. I asked it to create a marketing plan for the book, a press release, and social media campaign. Without ChatGPT, those tasks might have taken days or weeks, possibly even months. They would have required the work of consultants and assistants. Now these multiple tasks were collapsed into seconds and minutes, performed by one solitary individual. Fortunately, my innate sense of curiosity kicked in, and I asked ChatGPT to create versions of the proposal written in Elizabethan verse, haiku, and hip-hop. Then, I asked it to translate the proposal into French, Spanish, and Estonian, all of which it accomplished with astonishing speed. While the possibilities are spectacular, the dark side is breathtaking. The GPT engine can also err by, for example, citing non-existent sources for the book proposal. Far worse, it can generate dangerous information. Political leaders could use it to spread false information. Write an essay on why the last U.S. elections were a fraud. Write a public figure's confession of marital infidelity. Create a role play between two people discussing how to create a dirty bomb. What are the implications of this technology? And who owns the copyright to content created? The creator of the AI model, the user of the AI, or the AI itself? How will a teacher know whether a student wrote an original essay or a music label know whether a composer actually wrote a song? Could an authoritarian state use AI models to keep doziers on every citizen and predict and prevent a citizen's action in a minority report? How will we know whether a human or bot created content? How will this technology affect jobs and labor markets? Generative AI tools are not sentiment. But as we saw with Microsoft chatbot on Twitter, they learn from an online world that is replete with widespread hate speech, racism, gender bias, abusive writing, and false information. How can the public interest shape the evolution and control of this invention? What laws, new institutions, education, and new behaviors will we require? One thing appears certain, 
the newest forms of AI have shaken the windows and rattled the walls of our economy and our civilization. It's my belief, it's my belief that our newer technologies have pushed us to a tipping point and that we need to begin developing the blueprint for a new social contract that takes our newfound capabilities into account. From this point forward, we can no longer ignore the depth and magnitude of the changes we are likely to experience as the combined shockwaves of AI, the Internet of Things, as a combined shockwave of AI, the Internet of Things, Web3, and virtual worlds ripple through our economies and our cultures. Like it or not, we've entered the second era of the digital age. Are we prepared? How will we fare? What will human society look like after these waves of transformation have subsided? These are open questions. And I feel the need to search for answers, not just for our generation, but future generations. I'll leave you with these words from William Butler Yeats. And what rough beast, it's our come round at last, slouches toward Bethlehem to be born. Don Tapscott is author of 16 widely read books about technology and business and society, including the bestseller Blockchain Revolution, which he co-authored with his son Alex. He's co-founder of the Blockchain Research Institute and adjunct professor at INSEAD, Chancellor Emeritus of Trent University in Canada, and member of the Order of Canada. And on to our next article. Money Talks. Justin Trudeau is learning the hard way that keeping Canada competitive comes with a high political price. Ottawa. The Trudeau government claims it's not just about the money, but it is. Money doesn't just talk. It turns out that it builds car plants on Canadian soil, but only if there's enough of it. That's a takeaway from the ongoing dispute that exploded between a multinational joint venture seeking more taxpayers' support for an EV battery plant in Windsor and the federal and provincial politicians vying to keep it here. There's a lot at stake politically. Voter confidence that the money is well spent Investor confidence that corporations will continue to see Canada as a place to invest. And for a minority liberal government, the question is whether its economic and fiscal wager on a new EV industry is a smart bet. What's clear is taxpayer money is on the table, and lots of it. Sometimes it comes in a direct outlay of hundreds of millions of dollars in hand, cold taxpayers' cash. Sometimes it's tax credits, a boon to the bottom line of corporations. Sometimes it comes via indirect support, less red tape, reduced regulations, more infrastructure, financed by the public purse. To keep that Stellantis EV battery plant under construction in Windsor, it's apparently going to take all of the above. There are two separate disputes here, one between Stellantis, its Korea-based partner, LG Energy Solution, and Ottawa and another between Ottawa and the province, over who should pay what. In the mad scramble this week to prevent the planned $5 billion Windsor project from heading to the U.S., the federal government complained publicly its resources aren't infinite. De Deputy Prime Minister and Finance Minister Christian Freeland said that the provincial government needs to pay its fair share to keep Stellantis here, and the company needed to be reasonable. This came after the Star first revealed last week the federal government was in tough talks with Stellantis, parent company of Chrysler, Jeep and Fiat, with 
the project threatening to relocate it if Canada didn't match U.S.-style subsidies. On Friday, Premier Doug Ford said the province would increase its initial $500 million contribution to Stellantis by some unspecified amount. Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne said Ford's offer represents progress, but Ottawa's negotiations with the company are ongoing. Champagne was in Washington on Friday and doing in damage control and trying to paint a rosy picture of crisis talks. I'm sure heading to Korea that he would even meet with LG Energy Solution Executives. Champagne revealed that he sat down with CEO Young Soo Kwon over a two-hour dinner in Seoul, where Prime Minister Justin Trudeau had pitched Canada as a reliable trade and investment partner. Whatever deal that Ford and Ottawa are working on, and whether it's going to salvage the Windsor plant remains to be seen. The Trudeau government has been anything but transparent when it comes to its negotiations with Stellantis or the other companies it's wing. For example, it never confirmed it kicked in $500 million, matching Ontario's $500 million to Stellantis in the first place back in March 2022. Months later, when Ottawa reached a different, when Ottawa reached a different deal to offer up $13.2 billion in subsidies to land Volkswagen's first EV battery manufacturing plant outside Europe in St. Thomas, Ontario, the Liberal government withheld deals for weeks, claiming commercial sensitivities and other project negotiations would be adversely affected. It did not reveal those details in the federal budget. If anything, the federal Liberals suggested the government had chosen a different track than the U.S. because it could not compete dollar for dollar. And instead of subsidizing the back-end operations of companies as the U.S. was prepared to do, Canada would offer investment tax credits at the front end of clean energy projects to spur construction here. Whether the Prime Minister and Ford finally stood in front of Canada's with VW executives, it is clear Canada has in fact agreed to match U.S. production subsidies. The rationale for that policy decision seems to be that well, money talks. The show government once insisted that what draws Stellantis, Volkswagen, and other next-generation developers like Ericsson to Canada is not, or not, not just taxpayer subsidies. Rather, they pointed to the competitive advantage Canada has with an educated and skilled workforce, universal public health care, open immigration policies, tariff-free trade, access to markets, particularly the U.S., abundant supply of green energy like hydroelectricity, green steel and aluminum, and an R&D ecosystem of universities and institutions focused on innovative technologies. But suddenly, it sure seems like the money is the thing. The bigger question is how much it's going to take. Trudeau government has pegged its economy, economic growth and clean energy strategy which it says is a matter of economic and national security on Canada gaining a toehold in the burgeoning electric vehicle and battery manufacturing sector, pitching this country as a go-to destination because it can be a reliable supplier of minerals like lithium and cobalt critical to that sector. Both the Stellantis and Volkswagen plants promise thousands of new jobs, 2,500 in Windsor and 3,000 in St. Thomas. Aaron Wudrick, Director of Domestic Policy at the McDonald-Laurier Institute, said in an interview, Subsidy Bidding Wars, 
only lead to perpetual handouts or demands for them, and it's folly for the Trudeau and Ford governments to think it stops here. Every other business is watching this, and they're all going to see that. Oh look, the federal government and the Ontario government are prepared to put this much money on the table together. So what do you think is going to happen the next time anyone wants to invest in Ontario or anywhere else in Canada? They're going to say, how much will you pay me to put my factory here? I mean, it's just a really terrible precedent. Brian, King Brian Kingston, head of the Canadian Vehicle Manufacturers Association and Flavio, Flavio Volpe of the Canadian Auto Parts Manufacturers Association say Ottawa has no choice but to step up. The American Clean Energy Subsidy Package is a game changer, forcing Canadian companies and governments to compete in a fundamentally different environment than we were in even two years ago, as this transition was underway, Kingston said. Its view, his view is it's the first time in nearly a century where Canada has a unique opportunity to increase our share of the North American automotive sector up from about 10% as the industry goes through a massive transformation to electrification. Once the footprint and supply chain is developed, that will be what dictates automotive production in North America for the coming decades. So that's why the timing of this is so crucial and why we need to do this at the moment. The federal liberal government has imposed targets which require that by 2026, 20% 20 of vehicle sales are net zero emission vehicles, and by 2035, 100% of those sales must be net zero. These companies would not be electrifying if it weren't for the jurisdictions forcing them to. So if you're going to force someone to sell these products into the exclusion of internal combustion, then you also have to help move the industry along. So here we are, says Wolf, representing auto parts makers. But Wojcik says those targets should drive the decisions. These vehicles can be made anywhere. They don't have to be made in Canada. Advocates try and frame the subsidies as kind of an admission ticket to the industry. You pay to play, and my response to that is it's never just an admission ticket. It is a sort of constant protection racket. We're seeing that right now with Stellantis, and we've seen that in the past with aerospace and cars. The only way to end the cycle is to say no to subsidy wars, he said pointing to Australia's decision not to shore up its domestic automotive sector after companies put out. If anything, said Rudrick, if you're going to play the industrial policy game, you should be looking at areas where they have a built-in advantage. Things like critical minerals, agriculture, forestry, where we have natural assets, where no money from our competitors are going to be able to match that. James Moore, former federal industry minister of the Stephen Harper Conservative Government, said in an interview, says Canada is the fifth largest auto purchasing market in the world. And he agrees that government should try to draw investment. Otherwise, it would be a missed opportunity. It's not something that we should say no to just out of ideological instinct. But Stellantis, he said, won't care about the politics at play. And will make a business decision about whether the costs here are worth it. For now, details of whether federal-provincial deal on shared costs, Trudeau and Ford are working on are unclear. So is whether any of it will satisfy the company's demand. You have been listening to a reading of articles and features from the May 20th issue of the Toronto Star. Your reader has been Esther Provo. Thank you for listening.